One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast, all about brilliant books about music about so many fantastic stories and personal soundtracks that emerge from fraying spines and bent-over leaves. I'm Jude Rogers, journalist, broadcaster and author of White Rabbit Title, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. Today's guest is the lodestar of a creative, political, working-class East Sussex family. By her late teens, her nail varnish freshly painted, she left home for a bedsit in rationing-era London, working at the troubadours of barmaid around singing spots at clubs. Here she met an older man, who we'll talk about in a little bit, who didn't always treat her entirely brilliantly, but with whom she travelled around the southern states of America in an era of terrifying racism and segregation and recorded some unforgettable artists. She also recorded many songs herself, alone, with Davy Graham, her sister Dolly and many others. Extraordinary, exploratory, timeless records. And, after a 38-year break from singing, returned to it in the last decade. I first fell in love with her music in the mid-2000s when her 1965 album Folk Roots, New Roots with Davy Graham was reissued and soon after read her 2005 memoir America Over the Water which was expanded and reissued by White Rabbit earlier this year. My guest is the living embodiment of traditional music being visceral, bodily, raw, beautiful and true to the people who sang it. She's also a legend in my house as the woman who bought my son his first ice cream on his first birthday at Ask Pizza in Lewis and put a candle on top of it. I'm very excited to introduce you all to the wonderful Shirley Collins. <laughs> Hello, Jude. How are you, Shirley? <laughs> well, feeling rather flattered, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a, yeah, a Rococo opening, but uh, yes, I love you very much and I'm delighted to be here in your house um, where I've been before for interviews and once your famous sausage stew on the night of the Lewis bonfire. <laughs> um, how are you keeping? I'm well in my health, thank you. My brain's still working. I can still sing a bit. So, no, things are fine. Good, good. And the last few years have obviously been incredibly busy for you, you know, even around lockdowns and pandemics. Um Promoting your last record, Heart's Ease, and the reissuing and the expanding of your book. Um, did it mean a lot for you for it to come out again in that form? Yes, it did. Um, because the first time it was published um, was with a, pu a publisher I hadn't heard of. Um, and they just vanished after a bit, you know, so everything vanished with them. Um, no, I'm really thrilled it's out again. One thing I was thinking about preparing for today people said a lot to me after I published my book Jude you know you're in your mid-40s why have you not written a book before um and the quite the answers were quite obvious to me you know I was a freelancer I was trying to earn money to put food on the table look after family you know thinking about the emotional load of writing a very personal story there was an element of fear about writing a book and there's also a sort of presumption you'll have confidence and the money behind you to to do this book so you wrote your book in the early 2000s. What made you do it at that point? Had you thought about it before? What were the reasons you hadn't done it till then? I didn't think I was a writer, and so I hadn't done anything about it before then. But there was a point when my mum said, asked me if I'd like my letters back. 
And I said, which letters are those, Mum? She said, your letters from America. And she had saved every single letter I wrote home in 1959. And I read through them, and they seemed so lively and so full of information. And so they just took me back to the time, you know. And um, I, I sort of thought... Well, I will write it, and it's partly because um, in Alan Lomax's book, the book I want to talk about today, The Land Where the Blues Began, um, I get one mention um, in some part of Mississippi, and he just says Shirley Collins, the lovely English folk singer who was along for the trip. Um, but I was his proper assistant, you know, for <laughs> the three months of the trip and sort of for a year um, while I was in the States. And that sort of irked me naturally. Um, but then when I looked at it last night, as I was wondering how to talk about it, I do see that I get credits for part of the recordings as well in the in the disc list at the end. So, uh, but, but at the time I was oh, hopping mad, you know, because one is so fed up with being uh, just you know, turned aside by blokes. Yeah. You know, they, they take all the credit. Absolutely. Now we're going to talk about this um, today. So um, before we get on to talking about um, Alan's book... Um, you know, I wanted to know what it was like for you to you know, sit down and write it. You know, you're somebody who, you know, famous, you don't write your own songs. You sing other people's songs. This is the thing that drives you. Um, you're somebody who doesn't like ego. <laughs> um, so to engage with writing, you have to put yourself out there on the page. You know, how did you find that process? Very enjoyable, actually. I I really liked writing once I'd started. The only thing was I didn't know how to start because I thought you had to have a first line written before you could write a book. Um, and finally, it, it just emerged. It came to me that you know I could use mums that they'd lain in a drawer at my mother's house for many years, and that started it. Um, and then I wrote the whole thing in chronological order, really. Um, so sort of talking about why a girl from Sussex, you know, the age of 24 in 1959, should be accompanying America's leading folklorist on a trip in the Deep South. It didn't seem likely. Um, so I had to start right at the, be the beginning, um, you know, where I sung at home, listened to Grandad singing, um, just working through all my childhood that led me to that point of meeting Alan Lomax in London when I was 20. Um, so in a moment, we'll go into a bit more detail about today's book. But at the beginning of every podcast, I ask every guest three questions. Are you prepared? Yeah, I'm sort of prepared. <laughs> well, don't worry. If Are not, you I'm, prepared? Am I prepared? I, well, I don't know what you're going to say. <laughs> I know what you're like. <laughs> um, so who was the first musical artist that you loved? I think of recordings, it would be Jean Ritchie, the Kentucky singer. I heard her on the radio I think and loved her Appalachian songs and her voice which is so crystal clear and so high and so sort of you know you just felt you were in the mountains of Kentucky with her um, and it was the first album the first record I bought it was a 78 of, of four of, of Jean's songs and that was the I think that was probably the only record I bought because we didn't it was different times Jude this was you know a long time ago where did you buy it? I can't remember. It might have been in the shop at Cecil Sharp House. Right. That's where I think I must have bought it. But it was a little 78. Um, Very fragile. Yes. <laughs> um, who was the first writer on music you loved? Now, I know you're somebody who's read a lot of books, obviously, about um, traditional music and, you know, obviously contributed and written well, yourself. Yes. I mean, so... It, <laughs> 
the, the thing I have to confess is that I don't really read books about music, you know, just make it instead. Um, I read a great deal, but it's, it's all fiction. But the first book, I suppose, would be... Um, I mean, the first book I bought was the Appalachian, Cecil Sharp's English folk songs from the Southern Appalachians, which has great notes in it as well. Um, and still singing songs from it today as well. And that cost me 63 shillings, and that was two weeks' wages for working in the bookshop at um, near Hampstead. But it was the best money I ever spent, I thought. It's a, it's a fantastic book with amazing material in it. But the first book I suppose I read that was written about music would be Bob Copper's books. Um, How would you describe Bob Copper to somebody who didn't know who Bob Copper was? And obviously he's a great folk name. Well, yes, I mean, he's a, he's a wonderful countryman who's comes from a family that has existed in Sussex um, for centuries, about four centuries. And they often joke, they, they now live in Rotting Dean, those who are surviving. Um, no, they live in Peacehaven now. They first started out in Rotting Dean, which is four miles along the coast. And they always joke that it took 400 years to get the four miles from <laughs> Rotting Dean to Peacehaven. <laughs> Um, but Bob uh, has been called a parish historian of genius, and I think that's true. And he writes as he speaks, I mean, with a great deal of knowledge and so much love for the music. And he's just great at sort of representing people and, and you know, letting you see who they are and how they are and how their lives are without any, any sort of... Um, false steps at all. In many ways, he's like Alan Lomax, who writes, they write romantically and passionately about the singers and the music they love. But it's never false, you know, it's always honest and just sort of grabs you. I mean, it gives me goosebumps just mentioning the two names together now because their writing was so evocative for a start. Mm. Um, and they loved, you know, they loved what they were writing about. Um, and so we the first writer of music you love and the first music book you love this is the same the same kind of um stuff so um i think we should go on to today's book so we, we've mentioned it already um the land where the blues began by alan lomax yes. um published in 1993 um and you've already mentioned um and you know i've got an edition that's a little bit later it's 94 95 that i got second hand some years ago um I looked yesterday um, into the index, and um, yes, you're mentioned once in the index. Oh, hooray! <laughs> well, I mean, this is also partly what led me to write my version of America Over the Water, because Alan had sent me a copy of this book in 1993. Is that the edition you've got there? Yeah. yeah. It says, with much love and great admiration to one of the sweetest singers and ladies who ever walked and graced the green bays of this earth, signed Lomax 1993. Wow. And then... I'm just Mr. Shirley Collins, lovely English folk song, who's young, along for the trip. Yeah, well, I would swear if, if I wasn't such a lady. <laughs> <laughs> but that incensed me so much because I knew how much work I had done and how reliant he was on me as well for, you know, a great deal of the time. I took all the notes I wrote. I mean, it was just endless contracts, notes, listening to people, talking to them, you know, doing virtually what he was doing, except um, not actually switching the machine on, you know, for the tape-to-tape mm. -tape recording. And uh, it is a man thing, you know. <laughs> they just forget you're there <laughs> some of the time, you know, yeah. and forget to credit you. Uh, but in a way, that was a good thing because it spurred me on, you know. It takes us through 
um, Alan's trips and Shirley's <laughs> um, in America, introducing us to some of the amazing um, musicians um, that he met along the way and uh, recorded. Could you tell us um, where you were in the early 1990s, Shirley, what you were doing when you received this book from Alan? I was living in Brighton. I think I must have been um, managing an Oxfam shop in Brighton at the time. That would be about that time, yes. Um, Were you excited most... to get it and you know see the dedication no. inside? And... <laughs> no, I saw the dedication inside. Yes, it was half, you know, anger. You think, oh, for God's sake, you know, give us a bit of credit. Um, but I did get the credit and I got a very personal one, of course, and... Um, it that wasn't long after that Alan came to visit um, and it was just lovely to see him. He came down to Brighton and we talked a great deal, obviously. And um, sometimes when people say something, your respect for them just slips a bit, you know, because you think, how could you think that or do that? And we were arguing about who was the greatest ballad singer that we both knew. And he said, you and McCall. Oh dear. No. no, I mean, partly because I personally disliked Ewan McCall, but I thought his singing was just so manufactured in a way. You know, he it was it was a bit of a bleat and a bit of a northern bleat. And it, it was just made up. I mean, but he, he could sing he, and he sang some good songs, but not to my taste. Yeah. And so Fallon thought he was the greatest sing, ballad singer he'd ever heard when he'd heard all these people he, as he recorded in England and Scotland and Ireland and in America, how he could think that Ewan was better than, I mean, at least 50 of them. You know, it, it just, I, I was amazed. Do you think it's this idea of this these grand men of folk mm. somehow? You know, Ewan McCall... Um, obviously is such a big figure in folk music in the UK still. I remember with great delight, Shirley, um, when I, the Observer ran a piece on um, the 100th birthday of Hugh McCall and um, I was contacted by my editor and asked, will you do some interviews for this? You know, you know a lot of folk musicians. And I said, oh, I'll ask Shirley, but she's not going to come up with what you want. <laughs> <laughs> and you are, you, you talked about him um, and how he had... Um, We'll let you tell the story. Do you want to tell the story? Which story? When you knock, you knock the door, and you McCall. Oh well, yes, it's a bit crude, actually, isn't it? Um, but this was before I met Lomax, um, mm. when I sort of must have been in London a couple of years and was going to sort of various folk clubs um, and singing at Cecil Sharp. I just wanted to listen, um, and I, you know, if, if I was asked, I'd sort of be brave enough to try and sing but I was always rather nervous of it um, and I went to the critics club and which was Ewan McCall's which, um, sorry yes which was the the um, the club that Ewan ran with Bert Lloyd and a couple of other people it's all and, very serious and quite academic oh, about folk God, music yes I mean it was, and you had to sing with an accent, um, you know, the, from the place you came from, which is fair enough, you know. I mean, <clears throat> that makes sense for me to sing in my Sussex voice rather than try to put on a, you know, if I'm singing a Scottish song, which I hardly ever do, you know, I wouldn't want to sing it with a Scottish <laughs> accent. No, so I'd spent a lot of time in Cecil Sharp House going through the books, and Ewan said that he'd got a library of, of books of folk song and invited me out to his house to see them. Come and see my etchings. It was, but I hadn't realised at the time. Um, and so I went out, I think somewhere in South London, and 
he opened the door and I walked into the hall and he started undressing. He just took his, started taking his clothes off and I ran. I mean, I just fled instantly. And I was really partly annoyed because I had no money and I had to find the bus fare home as well to get out and back. And it was just a waste of money. And it was such a shock. Mm. And I disliked him ever since because I think that's no way to behave, you know. I mean, God knows what would happen if, if he was you know, talked about now in those mm. regards. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, no, it was extraordinary. And I know he disliked me and I disliked him. And I always want to put my st- my story in there first because I, you know, just don't want people to think I'm lying, mm. which I'm not. But there's this idea of these great men who dictate the narrative of it, you know, and it's quite difficult with Alan Lomax because he was such a massive figure, him and his father, in the recording and collecting of of folk songs, not just in the United States of America but across Europe. Yes. Um, let's talk about um, the book a little bit. Um, you know, there's... Alan's writing and storytelling, you know, you've said already that there's a, you know, romance and passion behind um, his portraits of people. Which character portraits um, in the book, you know, jump to your head straight away? You know, there's, um, he talks about um, Mississippi Fred McDowell um, in in a really beautiful way who later went on to really inspire a lot of the British, you know, blues and rock and roll musicians. The edition of the book I have has a quote from Mick Jagger on the front, who, you know, they played with um, Mississippi Fred McDowell. There's some fantastic stuff about Muddy Waters um, being recorded on the Sherrod Plantation and the descriptions of his singing. These people do leap out of the page. Yes. I mean, I think what Alan manages to do is... Not only give, I mean, he gives an honest representation of them, but it's also a romantic one, just because the stories themselves are so romantic and brutal often, you know, and and everything that's done to these people is recorded there, reported there. He doesn't shy, well, he doesn't shy away from any of that because, you know, he's a, a left-winger um, who loves people and musicians and singers and was often in trouble with the authorities in the, in the mm. States. Um, so he writes with just great affection and respect, you know, which is, is quite crucial in many ways. You know, you can talk about a musician, but not bring that bit of respect in. He admired them so much, you know, and the music, I mean, as people, he loved them because, you know, they were amazing characters, most of them, and um, had survived, you know, brutal lives as well. And he just, just gives you a clear picture of them and allows them to speak as well. You know, this book at the Land Where the Blues Began is remarkable, I think, because there are so many um, reports, you know, just mm. just chapters on Big Bill Brunsey talking with with Sonny Boy Williamson and Memphis Slim in a, in with Allen in New York um, back in the, in the 50s, I think that would be, or the late 40s. And when he played those recordings back, because they talked very openly about their life in the South and how, you know, terrifying it was in many ways and how unjust the way they were treated and how cruelly and brutally. Mm. Um, and they begged him not to let anyone hear those recordings of them speaking about it because they knew that if they went down South or and their families, you know, would be under attack. So they had to be quiet about that. And it wasn't until some, what, 40 years later that they gave another set of of recordings speaking about their lives in Chicago. And that time, you know, things had eased up somewhat and they were established. Mm -hmm. And they allowed that to be heard. Right, right. Yes, some of the 
It's it's an interesting book to read now in 2022. You know, you know, um, you're thinking of this time. In some ways, it's a long time ago. But I'm sitting here with you. It's in your lifetime. You've been to these places and met these people. We're now living in a world where you know there are you know there is a rise in you know the, the right in America and in racial tensions and in all kinds of areas. It's you know, terrifying. Kind of, is it what? What is it? Yeah. What is it like to think about that time in relation to now for you? It just brings all the bad bits back. You know, I mean, we were chased off. Um, a point in the road as we were driving to Georgia by um, trustees on horses with rifles because Ellen got out and started to photograph the chain gang that was working at the side of the road. Um, He was often threatened by local people, and especially the only time I was there in 1959, he he was in um, Hughes, Arkansas, and... he, He knew it was just too dangerous a place for me to be, but the music was wonderful. There was some real coarse music but wonderful blues being played by sort of fairly coarse players as well and he sent me back to Memphis to for the couple of nights uh, while he stayed there and I mean he was under arrest at one point you know uh, while he was recording in one of the the joints um, two cops came in and asked him what he was doing there and took him down to the jail. But, I mean, at least he had, had permission from the sheriff. But he it was aware often that he made he was making mistakes, um, especially in his earlier recordings in the 30s, where things were even worse than they were in the 50s. He stepped on people's toes, and but survived somehow. I mean, which I have to say, it's not exaggerating to say how dangerous it was there and how... Ugly, um, the white people were. It was you know, most iniquitous setup. And this is such a different, and you know, these these environments were such different environments from where you know you would come from and grown up. You know, and you know, and you you write to yourself about how you were quite shy in some ways. You um, you know, when you first knew Alan and you became. You know, his partner, you were very nervous about that as well because he was a lot older and you were quite young and, the, you know, that, all, you know, the, so you were going into these very new situations and then suddenly you're on a boat to America in 1959 yes. by yourself. <laughs> and not only that, but my man, mum had been a member of the Communist Party as well in Hastings and um, so I was terrified about having to go through immigration because I had had to be sponsored by Alan's agent um, and his wife, because Alan couldn't sponsor me because he was a single man and they wouldn't let me in. Um, so I'd never met his agent or his agent's <laughs> wife, and I had to sort of go through immigration knowing this and thinking, they're going to turn me back, you know, they're not going because to let me through. Mom. <laughs> yeah, because of my mum. Because of my mum. But anyway, I got through, of course. Alan writes in the book at one point that music and culture are connected and that music is um, a mirror of culture. You know, you're somebody who has written a lot and in interviews talk a lot about, you know, the importance of music and working class culture. Does that idea really speak to you about music being a mirror for, you know, the wider culture? Well, yes, I mean, it, it it still does for me and it did, but I think it's a did for most people, you know, because the traditional music of this country is just sort of, 
in a way, fallen by the wayside because it's given very little encouragement. Um, and people tend to think of them, so if they're folk singers, you know, they've written a song overnight up in their bedroom and, oh, I've come down and ri- I ri- wrote a folk song last night. You, know? <laughs> you can't do that. It's got to have undergone that long process of being passed down by word of mouth. And, you know, preferably, I mean, well, not preferably because that's what happened, you know, passed on by the people who were actually singing it, the housewives, the fishermen, the farmers, the ploughboys, the working people of this country. As somebody who writes a folk column for a national newspaper, <laughs> um, I and I have editors who you know I you know tell them what I think folk is and they're great. Um, but still, people think oh folk music you know it's a it's it's a lovely girl it's a lovely singer it's a lovely um, girl singing like a you know a fairy. A fairy. <laughs> um, Whereas it's actually about you know quite raw bloody gutsy stuff and that really comes is. across in this yes. book. These you know folk songs are about people dealing with you know great Harsh, injustice yes. and hard lives. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, and also what I think is great about the book is that Alan does take it right back. You know, it's the land where the blues began, and that's certainly true. That's where the blues began in America, in the Deep South. I was thinking the other night, um, thinking about you coming down, of how people just snitch this stuff as well. You know, they just take a bit, like Lonnie Donegan did, of course, with all his skiffle and the um, lead belly music that he then said, you know, oh, he said copyright his, on his. Yes. But I was thinking about Mose Allison. I don't know if you remember his, yes. his Parchman Farm song. And I minded it, you know, it, there was these great work songs that, yes, they're about women sometimes. They're about, you know, how hard they worked, they're about their bosses, they're about the things they have to endure but Mose Allison at the end of it I mean it was quite you know people loved it and it was quite, sort of quite good to listen to but then he finishes up with yeah I've been in the jail the rest of my life and all I did was shoot my wife you know and I thought come on don't trivialize this yeah, but of course there were you know hundreds of convicts who had shot their wives um, but they mostly been picked up for other things like mm. the woman in Parchman Farm who mm. cleaned my room, I, she wouldn't speak to me for the first two days I was there. And then finally we started a conversation and I asked her what what crime she had committed. She said, well, I was walking down a railroad track that had a sign up that said no trespassing, but she wasn't able to read that sign because she was illiterate. And there she was stuck in jail for, and people just, you know, it, it, it was just keeping the workforce going. There are certainly people who should have been jailed, but there were far more, you know, that were just taken off the streets and off the countryside to, you know, keep this plantation going and make huge profits for the state of Mississippi. Mm. It must be quite strange to have seen, you know, you, to have gone to Parchment Farm, to have gone to, you know, all these little communities or even, you know, houses on the edges of, you mm. know, um, you know, vast areas of countryside um, and records these wonderful musicians and then seeing how their work is appropriated or... I don't have the word abused in my head. It's probably too much, but kind of mangled or changed. And, yes. Um, are there any other things in that field that, you know, annoy you or kind of irritate you? You know, I'm not sure by the way that, um, you know... The blues rock revolution of the uh, 1960s obviously was largely from people like you know you know I've mentioned Muddy Waters already. Well, I know you in Muddy Waters you thought it was wonderful. I do think Muddy Waters is wonderful. I always will. And I mean, what's amusing to me is that uh, 
you know, people like the Stones, who, you know, the Rolling Stone is one of um, Muddy's songs, but there's far more sexual charge in Muddy singing it solo with his guitar than the whole of the Rolling Stones leaping about the stage, you know, strutting and stuff and trying to sound as much like him as possible. Uh, although it is a good sound, you know, you, you, it is an attractive sound, obviously, and people love it. But if you remember, you know, as I do, the original, having heard Muddy Waters sing it back, you know, in the 40s, I think, when Alan first recorded him, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But then I will say for the Stones that with Fred McDowell, who they loved and took up and, and you know, brought, brought him out of the South um, and bought him a silver lame suit, to wear on stage, um, in which he was buried, it said, you know. Yes. So, I mean, at least the Stones sort of appreciated it, I think, and didn't exploit it too much, but there was an awful lot of exploitation of those songs. Mm-hmm. I mean, partly with the people who recorded them in the first place, these record companies, the race records, so, as Alan says, so shamefully labelled, and they would, um, you know, bring the black blues singers in, mm-hmm. you know, often... I mean, not really well-known ones, you know, just from the fields and the local local areas, and record them, but never, never, never pay them. No royalties, mm. no contracts, no nothing, you know, they just... But they were pleased, of course, you know, as people are who want to be heard, that they were going to be heard. But a lot of money was made out of, you know, mm. of that. It's just cheating people. Well, talking about that, um, it's interesting thinking about this book and when it was written, when it was published in the early 90s. So you have this period when the blues is kind of coming back into pop culture consciousness again um you know the first time i heard lead belly was hearing kurt cobain um and nirvana singing right. where did you sleep last night on nirvana's last unplugged tv performance which i still think is fantastic and he really adored you know he, mm. he, in, when he was interviewed about the blues he obviously knew a lot and really respected um those musicians um uh, the Harry Smith anthology of American oh, folk that's music wonderful. Yes. came out again in yeah. the late nineties, and then, of course, there was the Coen Brothers' "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou" yes. soundtrack, which used two songs that you yourself had recorded mm. in America. And I love the story that you were watching it with your daughter, um, watching the film, and you said, "Oh, I recorded those." <laughs> <laughs> What? Well, your daughter first told me that. Extraordinary. I mean, when you say recorded, you mean I recorded them? Because sometimes when people say you recorded a song, yeah, no, I didn't. Not yours. Not by singing it. Yes, you were the person in America. No, I mean, so there is a great deal of both affection and respect for those um, blues musicians from a lot of the bands. You know, they're not exploiting it. Um, But I always rather would hear Muddy Waters singing. Manish boy um, than anybody else, really. I suppose in many ways, though, Fred McDowell, Mississippi Fred McDowell, was my favourite of all mm. um, because, you know, I happened to be there um, when he walked out of the forest into the clearing where we were recording some of the black musicians there and uh, started playing his guitar and played 61 Highway, first of all. It was the most, that was the most incredible moment of that whole trip um, because the sight of this slight little man and I he came and sat on one of the porches and started playing. It was the most beautiful sound ever, you know, it's just... Mm. Uh, for that music know, to be, inspire yeah. so many people. Well, yeah. yes, um, not that we knew it was going to at that time, but um, so I'm simply thrilled with all that. Um, you know, that's just, just a great part in... 
of my life, I think, that, um, you know, I'm so proud that I was there. Not that I had anything to do with it, except, you know, talk to them. Um, talk well, that's to a big people. part of it, isn't it? You well, know, yeah. To, to encourage people to have the confidence to be recorded, I'm sure. I, I know you're like, Shirley, you're a very lovely person. You know, you've, you're... That's surely the trust that was involved there because, you know, suddenly there were two white people coming into this small community. Yes. And you were saying, can I record you? You see, Alan was so experienced at recording that he had, and he had lovely southern manners and he was very gentle with people. And it was obvious that he loved them as well and loved the music. Um, People responded to Alan very Mm. quickly always and they trusted him. Um, But the one thing I did do that I I had later thought was wrong that when we left that um, particular community I kissed Fred's wife Annie Mae goodbye on the cheek and everything went absolutely silent nobody spoke and I said to Alan afterwards did I do something wrong and he said no I think that was the first time they'd seen a white woman kiss a black one Mm. you know Um, and I thought that's sad but I'm glad it was me Mm. (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss I've always found that's what's really interesting about folk music and my interest in folk music is when I started listening to folk music properly and started buying reissues of records like you know yours and um, and other singers um, some of these very old folk songs they're chilling you know they're it's like reading the most horrific stuff on the cover of a tabloid newspaper, <laughs> just from three hundred years ago, and you know. But there's also you know the the depths of heartache and heartbreak and despair and longing and love and mm. all these huge emotions. Um, and I think it's expressed best in those songs as well, better than in any other form of music. For me, for me, that is, you know, I mean, because a lot of people just don't agree with that; they don't get it. But um, I'm lucky. I. I get it. <laughs> now, I write in my book about your and your sister Dolly's um, version of Gilderoy um, and a song that you found of, um, verses of in the Cecil Sharp house and dug out. Stuck and... out in a little side room covered in dust and mouse droppings. Um, and it I... was a collection of Lucy Broadwood, who was really one of the great collectors, but it had been so neglected there Um partly because I think the house at that point wasn't really interested in, in their folk music. And also possibly not interested in the women around it as well. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, because, 
It's amazing to think of a time when you, Shirley Collins, weren't thought of as some, you know, a really important person in traditional music. And this was the case in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and when you ended up working there for a short time and you weren't treated very well. Um, which is just extraordinary to anybody who you know reads about your career now or listens to your records. Um, but yeah, there were lots of um, female folk collectors. You know, y- you are a female folk collector in this book who is not... Well, by good fortune, yes. Yes, but st- yeah. no, but, you know, you would take... Obviously, Alan must have taken you on that trip because he knew you would be useful or you would be able to help out, you know, with the jobs and talk to people. Um you did some amazing talks in the 2000s when I first knew you about female folk mm. collectors as well and saying, listen to the stories of these women who haven't been um, treated um, or recognised in the right way. You know, I'm thinking of, um, I've never known how to pronounce her name, Maud... Um, Maud Carpelis. Carpelis, yes. yes. You know, people like her. Um, and, you know, now in 2022, these women's stories may get more of a platform, but... Um, you know, thinking of this book, those those things must be in your head as well. These are their untold stories that are out there. Yeah, I'm sort of feeling a bit guilty as you say this because whenever I talk about um, English folk songs from the Southern Appalachians, they're collected by Cecil Sharp and Maud Carpley's, but the credit is always given to Sharp mm-hmm. um, because Maud was his assistant. You know, she but she was a musician as well. She was writing notes and possibly getting tunes down and words down because they had no recorder. Of course, it was all, all done in notebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I even I call it, you know, Sharp's book. Mm. That's because you know it's been known as that for a long time. Yes, and she, yes, we do this to ourselves as well, don't we? Yeah, true, <laughs> but that's that's not good. But there are these other, you know, female stories that um, obviously there are women talks about in you know this book as well, and there are female singers. Um, in the folk world, obviously, you made lots of wonderful records yourself. Um, you know, many with your your sister Dolly. Um, your what's the last? I'm trying to remember what the last record was you did with, before you had your break. Ma- was that when for as many as will? So that was with Dolly. Yes, yes, that was with Dolly. And then you had a long time when you didn't sing, which you've talked about a lot. Um, you know your vo- you know you, you you have your voice. Well, I, I always find it difficult to find the right words to say about this. How would you? Well, people I mean, are listening to this podcast and haven't heard the story of what happened then. Could you? People sort of find that the one useful word is dysphonia. Yes. Um, but it, I don't even know if it was that. I think it was just psychological. I think um, because I was so distressed at the um, uh, when Ashley left me for this actress at the National Theatre. So what happened? Just to summarize for listeners. Well, um, Ashley we Hutchings, your Ashley, second husband. Sorry, um, Ashley uh, Hutchings, yes. my second husband. Yeah. Um, you know, Steel Eyes in Steel Eyes Band and Fairport Convention and the Albion Band, of course, later. Um, we were working there on the, the production of Lark Rise to Candleford, Lark Rise, and it was lovely to do, you know, and the, there was John Tams and the Albion Band playing music, promenade performance, um, and I had to sing two or three songs. And then when I knew what was going on between um, Ashley and, and the first woman he had an affair with, um, she would turn up night after night and stand right in front of me as I was trying to sing. I mean, as close as, almost as close as you are. Um, dressed in his, wearing jumpers that she must think I'd recognise. And she just stood there. And and they were Ashley's jumpers. Tried, yeah. Ashley's jumpers. Yeah. And some nights, 
nothing would come out at all. I try not to cry, and I, I just, you know, it all sounds so feeble now, but it was really oh, bad at the time. And um, I struggled through. I think one and a half seasons, and then had to stop because it was just damaging me and I wasn't able to sing and some nights I opened my mouth and nothing came out you know can you imagine being in a theatre full of people as close as anything in a promenade performance and you're supposed to be singing a song and nothing happens or you croak badly or you fluff the notes I mean it was so humiliating and so heartbreaking as well you know it's a combination of both and um, I had to stop I mean, the years after that, you knew you had um, two children who were teenagers then, was that right? No, they were sort of the... coming into their early teenage when I was with Ashley. So you, but you had, you know, you were a mother and you had children to look after and, yeah. um, and you know, you had other priorities in your life. Um, and then, you know, time moves on and, you know, we get through to the 90s and Alan writes his book and you're like, right, one day I'll write mine. And then you eventually do, you know, be, you know you're just doing normal jobs and not being Shirley Collins, the folk singer, for a long time. To think of, you know, The Land Where the Blues Began and the way Alan Omax mentions you in that book um, and you know, the injustice you felt back then and then you write that book and you start talking about female folk collectors and then you sing again and then you make some more records and, you know, that whole, you know, process, you know, just me talking about it, it feels very emotional thinking about it. Um, and you, I know you've revisited... You obviously revisited your um, memoir in recent years and expanded it. And in the original version of it, you know, you were quite angry about Alan and you've changed that in mm. the recent edition. Well, can you tell me about that? I, I really, you know, how can I still be angry at a man who achieved everything that he achieved? You know, all the music he recorded, how influential he was, how, you know, he gave people a clear picture of what life was like for black people in the south and how remarkable it is that this music just kept coming through and through and is still with us today um although not in the same painful way that it, it was you know it was it was people expressing themselves people complaining people being bitter people saying this is not how it should be, you know, and, and telling the truth about the situation in the South. But all with this wonderful music, you know. Um, I can't think of anything I'd rather listen to than Fred McDowell singing 61 Highway. You know, it's just unbelievable. And also, you know, hindsight makes you think of your know, difficult experiences you've had in different ways I know we've talked before that there was um, a film made towards the end of Alan's life in the 2000s called Lomax the Song Hunter yes. and he'd had a stroke and he's in a swimming pool and he can't speak and you know that experience of seeing him at that stage of his life well yes I mean what was absolutely remarkable about that was that it was a film made by Dutchman Roger Capes um, and they went to Spain and Italy and hunted, you know, several, I mean, many years after Alan had recorded there in the 1950s, they hunted out people he'd recorded or their families. And mm. um, he said how wonderful it was that, um, you know, people took the instruments down, the fiddles and the whatever. Some of the old ladies did the dances that they remembered and some people sang the songs. And they took it to Alan and played it to him mm. while he was in the swimming pool. And the transformation that came over his face when he saw them. I mean, just before they filmed it, there was this blank face, nothing happening. 
the minute he played them, they played the music to him, you know, his eyes lit up, his face lit up. And I think that was such a wonderful thing to do. And I can't criticise a bloke who has done what he did, you know. I mean, you have to forgive people all their sort of minor uh, wrongs because I'm sure I've committed some minor wrongs as well. <laughs> Although, actually, I can't remember on the spot. <laughs> um, and... It's, you know, it sort of broke my heart, um, but sort of gave me that reminder that this was a great man and what he achieved was great. What, you know, talking about how he responded to music, you know, what role does music play in your life now? You know, I know it's very important to you to sing songs in a way that makes us think about all the people who have gone before you and have sung them. But when you're listening to certain versions of folk songs or singing songs yourself? You know, what does it make happen to you? Well, I tend not to listen to other people singing songs because I don't very much often like the way they're doing them. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, people like Nick Jones I can always listen to. and uh, So I don't, I, I don't often listen to other people because it just doesn't reach me now. Um, I'd rather listen to... David McGuinness's Concerto Caledonia, which is Scottish, I know, but it's just such beautiful music. Um, and playing sort of 18th and 17th century English dance music. And that's the music that sort of gets me going now. Just It, it just, you know, warms me so much. It's so beautiful and so sexy, some of it, um, and so unsexy, other bits of it. Everything <laughs> is absolutely gorgeous. Um, but there's the sensuality about English music and the, the sort of jolly sensuality, you know, that people don't seem to get nowadays. I love how you've always spoken about that in a really fantastic way because it's not talked about you know and, and also the, uh, there's so many folk songs that you know women's sexuality oh, yes. is really in it's yeah. you know, on fire in a lot of it yeah well I mean that's all part of it isn't it it's a major part of it and it's why we sing it I think not the royal we of course I mean why <laughs> I sing it because you know those songs just take hold of me and um I mean, some of the songs you sing about, you can't really approve of what's happening in the songs. You know, people getting slaughtered like um, Cruel Lincoln, you know, where the whole household oh, gets wiped out. But it's a marvellous song. And that was collected by Bob Copper from um, a woodsman just not too far down the road from here. Um, you know, a song that was hardly collected. And yet what's miraculous about all this is that that song survived, you know, this travelled down through time. You don't often hear it sung, you didn't, and this was in the 50s. Um, and yet these songs did survive, you know, partly, thank God, due to people who collected the music, like Bob Copper, who collected Southern English music, and Lomax, who collected, you know, Southern, mm. southern USA music. Yeah, these songs, to be remembered, needed to be, you know, written down and, you know, and you know, recorded on these incredibly hulky pieces of equipment that you used to have to carry around. Well, yes, and because there was hardly ever any electricity where we were recording, you know, we were carrying um, often just into houses, sometimes up mountainsides to record, uh, these heavy batteries. And it was the first time that any field recording had been done in stereo, which was incredible. And I think Alan really enjoyed doing that. But carrying, I mean, it was a big tape recorder, you know, reel to reel, microphones, up mountainsides to record Kentucky hardshell Baptists sort of having a go at you for not being a good person because you got a short haircut. <laughs> <laughs> 
no, I mean, there were some terrifying moments, and yeah, it was it, it was great though. Just just all that physical stuff, um, and wherever Alan went, you know, wanted to go, I went too. Except the one time when the signpost said Rattlesnake Valley, and I said no, <laughs> <laughs> and I meant that. <laughs> So thank you so much, Shirley, uh, for sharing The Land Where the Blues Began with me. Now, to finish the podcast, a few recommendations from you, Shirley, would be nice. You've already given us a lot. Uh, Firstly, are there any other books you want to mention to us today? And I feel quite nervous asking you this as somebody with such a huge knowledge of traditional music. She's putting her reading glasses on. They're very glamorous, as always. (laughs) They are. And I noticed you've got your lipstick on as well. Lip- you, I, you, you always have lipstick on I before mine. I have to have lipstick on. I can't think without lipstick. If ever I was on Desert Island Discs <gasps> and I was asked what my luxury was, it would be a box of lipsticks and a fridge full of replenished and self-replenishing ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> you should be on Desert Island Discs, surely. <laughs> the campaign starts here. Anyway, no, no. Um, my two... Funnily enough, uh, the Penguin Book of English Folk Songs is is one of my favourite books, and it's the first book I bought apart from the um, Cecil Sharp and Moore Carpley's book, The Appalachian Songs. Um, this was published the year I came back from the States. Is that the edition as well? Yes, it is. Oh, it's, wow. Yeah, it's, it's a very good edition. It's not, yes, it is, although I thumbed it a lot and sing. I mean, one of the songs in here is... is a song that's coming out on hopefully the next album. Um, beautiful songs in there with notes by, I mean, chosen by Vaughan Williams and A.L. Lloyd. That was lovely. Um, and I, I sort of you know, go through that a lot. But the two best books are Bob Copper's books. Um, he collected for the BBC a lot in the 1950s. Um, following, you know, the BBC had sort of championed folk music in its in a slight way. Um, during the early 50s and late 40s with programmes on on the wireless, on the radio, um, Country Magazine and As I Roved Out. Occasionally they played a proper field recording of a traditional song. Otherwise it was sung by a baritone with piano accompaniment, which was absolutely dire. You know, and just <laughs> you couldn't get any idea of what the song was anyway. Um, so Bob collected for the BBC in the mid-50s, 60s, and found, I mean, just a, a wonderful amount of songs in the in the Sussex and Surrey, and then wrote about the people he met. And, and like Lomax, there's a slight romance about it as well, but absolutely spot on all the time. You know, it's never over romanticised, but you get this picture of how much Bob, like Alan, loved the people that he was recording from, and. You, there's another book as well that was called Songs and Southern Breezes and that's about the collecting and then there's a song for every season which is Bob's own life and the life of the Copper family in Sussex every, you know how they earned a living farming and fishing and have always sung Mm. and uh, you carry the songs forward you know through centuries and it's that working class tradition as well which I've always loved when I've interviewed you, you talk so much about it because um, it's so easy to take folk songs and dress them up or smooth mm. out their difficult moments um, <laughs> after them not to be about, not to be from the people from whom they originally came. And, you know, you are from that working class background and you have, you when you sing, I can almost imagine you're thinking about, you know, your upbringing and your family and where you were from and, 
you know, and other families and situations that are similar. Well, the Copper family, of course, was far more settled than <laughs> the, the Collinses. The utter knowledge that is soaked into mm. them, you know, of their work, their farming, their whatever they were doing. Um, and then the songs that they sang throughout the, you know, throughout the year, a song for every season. Mm. And, uh, and it's a miracle that that has all survived. But in Bob's hands, you know, he writes, as I say, it was a romantically and passionately and truthfully as, as Alan did. You know, they're great sort of counterparts, I think. Yeah. Um, I always have to mention when you, when anyone talks about um, you know, the BBC's very early mm. promotion of traditional music, um, David Attenborough, actually, in all that, because he was a big champion of making sure that folk and traditional yes. music went out there. And you knew him, didn't you? Well, I met he because he was the producer of Alan's yeah. um, early recordings for the BBC yes. Radio. And we did go to dinner. Alan took me to dinner at his house once, which was just, I mean, he's so lovely, you know, you can imagine. Um, so, yes, I, I have met David Attenborough. <laughs> I, one of my dream dinner parties would basically be people that Shirley Collins has met. Because <laughs> you have David Attenborough, I know you met him. I didn't know you'd gone to dinner with him. That's very exciting. Yes. Did you, do, you, do you know what you ate? Can you remember? Yes, I do remember because it was really disappointing. In those, <laughs> <laughs> in those days, this, was, this would be 1956, seven. You only had chicken once a year. It was the Christmas treat. And I thought, being very posh as they were, that they would, it would be roast chicken for dinner, you know, because... (laughs) But it wasn't, it was Lancashire hot pot, and it was absolutely delicious, but it wasn't roast chicken. (laughs) I haven't asked about your love of pop. I do love the fact that The King of Wishful Thinking by Go West is one of your favourite songs. It is, I love it. It thrills me. I love it. Is it because of Pretty Woman or is it because of the song? Well, no, I loved I it mean, as well as a teenager, I have to say. It's, it's well, a... I didn't hear it until I saw the film Pretty Woman. You know, it's how I pick up most of my pop songs. <laughs> but um, I just thought it was absolutely wonderful. I get the same kick out of it, the thrill out of it. I think it's absolutely marvellous and I beautiful as well. I think it's a great... I just love it anyway. I can't help it. You know, if you no. like something, you just can't help it. No, absolutely. And I, I read um, I read over the weekend that you... Um, you loved Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. as well, yes. which I didn't realise. Did my- oh, I'm no, a big R.E.M. fan. Yeah, no, it's gorgeous. <laughs> um, very consoling, but upsetting at the same time. But, it, no, beautiful. And I love, as you've said, um, Mark Knopfler, especially the music he composed for The Local yes. Heroes. So gorgeous. I only saw that recently in the last year, and it's the soundtrack's fantastic. It yeah, is really lovely, isn't it? That's one of my sort of favourite films you know among the top 20 I suppose yeah. partly because of that music it's yeah. just gorgeous well there we go I've got your pop. and Burt Lancaster of course to see an elderly <laughs> Burt Lancaster is sort of quite heartbreaking in a way yeah beautiful it's a fantastic film yeah. and finally um given that music is at the heart of this podcast it'd be great if you could recommend a book song for us now this is a so basically I'm asking people to recommend a song that you love that is inspired by a work of literature Ah, now, easy. Yeah. The first one that came to mind was A Week Before Easter from the Copper family. Ah. Hardy, Thomas Hardy. I mean, a lot of the songs are so hardy because they're full of yes. sorrow and, and awful, missed 
occasions, you know, miss things that are just missed and tantalisingly sad that, you know, this whatever hope you had hoped for was just gone away through a cruelty of fate. Now, so uh, Thomas Hardy, who I love, um, almost any any song, but the week before Easter particularly, mm. The False Bride is, is the one I think that I associate most with it. Fantastic. Great choice. Um, thank you so much, Shirley. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for letting us into your lovely home. Thanks to you all for <laughs> listening. Um, I encourage you from the bottom of my heart to read Shirley's books um, her tone of voice here today her, the way she speaks is in those books or her generosity of spirit is in them um, and listen to her wonderful records from the 1950s through to the 2010s hopefully we'll have some more in the 2020s as well Shirley so I'm off now for my tea and sandwiches um, <laughs> in the shadow of Lewis Castle with the rumble of trains I look forward to welcoming you all back next week with a new episode of Songbook with another great guest Speak to you then. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Songbook. You can find links to the books mentioned in this episode, as well as our Spotify playlist, in the episode description. Songbook is presented by me, Jude Rogers. It's produced by me and Alice Lloyd. It's edited and mixed by Dan Jones, and our music is by the one and only David Holmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>